In this passage, Jesus tells a story about two people. An interesting story, not a parable. He had used parables before, but this is markedly different than the other stories because he names a name, an individual. There's a rich man and there's a poor homeless guy. Now, I'll remind you that back in that day that there were great divisions. There was not a middle class per se. There are very poor people. Then there were people that had substance and they were referred to as rich people. But apparently the poor man was in bad shape. He was sick, covered with sores. He had to beg to, to live. He had no one to care for him. And he would be placed at the gate of this man, hoping just to get some crumbs that were left from his table to eat. Life had been hard on him. He had been turned away many times. People avoided him. He was diseased. But he died. And so often, the division in life and death, we don't see. We just know that when someone ceases to live, they're taken away. We don't want to think about that. Eternity is something that we might postulate on, and we might read about, we might consider, but as far as really understanding what happens, we don't deal with that a whole lot. Jesus did. I want you to notice in, in, in the telling of this story, there's a smooth transition from from life into death, no changes whatsoever. Scripture is very plain about that. It says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But this man dies, and it says he's taken away by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. Now, if you've not read this passage and you don't understand exactly what it means and why it doesn't reflect in your traditional value and understanding of eternity, let me explain something to you. We are hearing a story while Jesus is still here on earth. Entrance into heaven had not been purchased yet. Jesus had to die on the cross, and, and his blood as a propitiation for our sins had to be accepted by God the Father in order for us to have entrance into heaven. So before that time when you died and you were a believer, meaning that you sacrificed or made sacrifices, and you trusted God the best you could, according to what he had taught in the Old Testament, you would go to a place that was referred to as the dwelling place of the dead, Sheol, or the bosom of Abraham. And that's exactly where Lazarus was taken. Now, if you could imagine a picture of a place where you can see both places across from one another, but you can't move from one to the other. And I always try to envision the idea of a great well dug in the ground, a giant one bigger than the size of this room, and somewhere down in the vastness of that well dropping into nothingness, there are two caves dug on either side facing one another. Imagine, if you will, the choir over here and those in the balcony up there. Now, you cannot, could you jump up there, you think? I don't think so. They might try, but they couldn't make it down here. You're separated. 
There's a gulf, this middle section that's fixed here that you cannot get in between. That's the image that we're given of the dwelling place of the dead before Jesus purchased our entrance into heaven. Now, the place across from the bosom of Abraham, where those who were believers would go, was a place that was referred to as the place of the dead or torment. It was a frightening place. It is not the ultimate hell that we hear about, the lake of fire, which will be the ultimate destiny uh, of those who don't believe. The lake of fire is a place also where Satan and all of his angels, a third of the angels of heaven, one day will be moved to and excluded to. They will be in that place forever. And one day those believers that, that accepted the gift of salvation go to heaven. You see, the moment Jesus died on the cross, it said that he led captivity captive. He descended into hell, meaning the place of the dead, and he led captivity captive. He claimed all those who had believed before he died. Lazarus, Abraham, all those believers that were there, and he took them into heaven. I can't imagine what a gathering that would be. But when he did... Behind was left those who were in torments. And that's what I want to talk about today. It's not a pleasant subject to talk about. It's not an easy subject to talk about. This man died, and it says on a very hot, miserable day, he died, and the angels took him to paradise. But also... The rich man died later at some point, and he finds himself in hell, and that's what we want to think about today. In utter sorrow and torment, he looks up, he lifts up his eyes, and he is there. But in the midst of what he's seeing, he can look across from him, and far away he can see Father Abraham. Now, there's some things I want you to note about that. Number one, he's conscious. He's aware of what's happening. And he understands that he's separated from that place of paradise, and he calls out to Father Abraham. And he says these words, because what he's trying to communicate here is the idea that, that, that he's aware of what's going on and he needs help. He says, uh, son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, and Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted, and you're in agony. Now, the point he's making there is a very real point. What he's saying is, you had a life, and in that life, you had an opportunity to choose, as we all have in life to choose. We have a length of life to make a choice for what God offers to us in salvation. And it's very simple. Number one, we know that God made us, and we're very complex, complicated creatures. We're different than the animals that are around us. As much as some people try to say that we're only one or two chromosomes different or there's just a few deviant things that change from, from one species to the other, and I'm sorry. Genesis is very plain about how God created us. He created the animals and the birds and the fish and he created the plant life and he called all that into existence, but when he created mankind, it was a very personal creation. We were made in the image of God, and, and that is what is so unusual and different. 
It does not mean that God has hands and feet and a body and a head. Not at all. God is spirit. He is not flesh. But we are created in His image in that God is able to make choices. He chose to create us and to create the world. He makes definite choices. He has a personality and a character. God's nature is to be holy. God loves And there are things that he loves, and those things we are to go after. There are things that God hates. In the Proverbs, God says there are seven things that God detests and considers an abomination. Read them. They're fascinating. But in the midst of that, I want you to understand, we're made in God's image in that we are able to make choices, just as God makes choices. And he created us that way because he wants us to love him. Love is a choice. You can't be forced to love anybody. You can like what they do and they can can give you things that you want, but truly love is a choice down deep in your heart that you make and it's one that you renew constantly through life. You don't make a choice to love somebody once and always love them. You have to constantly choose to love that person and that love will grow if you allow it to. God created us in such a way that we had to choose Him and His gift. And we have to stay in that relationship and grow and mature day by day. The reality is we have a life to make that choice. And if we don't choose Him, there are consequences to living for ourselves, And that's the reality of what's spoken of here. We learn here that hell, a word is used called Sheol, or the place of the dead. And this was a very significant place, one that they knew of very well. There are many things we don't know about hell that we're not told about. But the reality is Jesus and the New Testament writers understood what hell was about. And he shared in a very realistic way words about hell. Hell was a physical place. It's a place where people hurt. It was a spiritual place because you're separated from God and and you're separated from all of those things that might have purpose and meaning to you. The horror of hell is not just the physical pain. You know, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels according to Matthew 25. But we understand that it also was a place of outer darkness where people were taken away from their potential in life. There's spiritual separation from God. There's moral remorse for what's happened. The consciousness of the individual does not cease. It goes on. And that, to me, is the most horrifying thing. In the midst of dying, the rich man said this, I've got five brethren, and apparently he loved them. And he said, I don't want them to be here. Send send him to say something to them. Now I want to think about what he had requested of Lazarus. First of all, the man that was covered with sores that people detested, he said, bring him here and let him touch the tip of my tongue with some water. Now, first of all, would you want a man covered with sores touching you? He was spiritually unclean. But somehow the ceremonial cleanliness of the culture didn't matter when you're burning up. The rich man was in torments. He was suffering. It was horrible. If he could just get something to quench that for a moment, 
And he said, no, there's a, there's a space fixed. You, he can't come to you. He said, well, send him to my five family members. They need to hear. And somehow in the midst of his circumstance, it didn't dawn on him that he too had a lifetime to make a decision. And he had not made that decision. I think that it's terrifying what is said here because when I read it, 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 to me the most sobering passage that you can read in, in this book, it said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You see, Jesus is going to die. And he's going to be raised from the dead. And people still don't believe. Do you realize our being here in this place today is a mockery for many people? They ride by a church and they look at it and they, and they laugh. They don't understand why we're here. They think that what we believe is based upon fairy tales. That somehow this book was, was, was put together by somebody that, that wanted to believe that beyond the cessation of life, that there's something more. But you know as well as I do, this book was not written by men that made it up. It was given under the divine inspiration to many men and women over a period of centuries from many different cultures, in different languages. This is not a, a, a single tome that was written by one individual. No, God compiled it over a long period of time to show a picture of His love for His creation and His desire to redeem us. Never say to yourself that the Old Testament's about judgment and the New Testament's about mercy or the Old Testament's about hate and the New Testament's about love. Absolutely not. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, we see the love of God expressed in so many ways. It's written about that. It's written for our forgiveness and for our restoration to our Creator. But the most frightening thing of all things that you will ever read in here is the reality that hell is not a place that was created in the mind of a man. But it's truth. The horror of hell is terrifying. The fire is, is overcoming. The, the desolate abandonment that you would feel there is beyond any understanding. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus gives a picture of what hell is like again. In fact, 11 times in Scripture, Jesus talks about hell. But in, in, in Mark 9, he is describing a situation. He's holding a child, and somebody has made some criticism about the child, and he makes this statement that is so powerful. And it's one that I wish our modern culture would hear today because this is the road we're heading down, I mean, this very moment. Jesus held that little child and he looked at that child and he, and he said these words. He said, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that trust in me, speaking of that little child, he said, It will be better for you that a millstone hanged about, be hanged about your neck and you drowned in the depths of the sea. Now that sounds pretty harsh, but let me explain what he's saying. Children had very little value to people in that day. The higher culture then that was not a follower of God 
Many of them followed Molech, who was one of the gods then. And a very common practice was to sacrifice your firstborn child to Molech in order to get a good crop yield that year. It's a common practice by many people back then. In fact, Jesus' judgment you know, that had happened to Israel, wiping out ten of the twelve tribes almost completely, was due to the fact that they sacrificed their children to Molech, their little ones. Jesus had an affinity and a love for little children that was beyond understanding. He, he reached out to them in a very special way. He said, only if you're like a child and have their childlike faith will you ever enter the kingdom of heaven. He loved children. He made them that way. And he said, if you offend one of these, if you mistreat one of these children, you will wish that you were in the bottom of the ocean under a millstone when I come to judge you. You can't imagine what your judgment will be like. And today in our world, in our community, in our state, children disappear constantly to be taken away and abused and brutalized and murdered. Children that Jesus loved. God is standing on the edge of his seat of judgment against America. Because we have not respected and loved his children. I'm not saying that getting rid of Roe v. Wade solved all our problems. No, it didn't. The problem is not a law. The problem is in the hearts of, of men and women that see that abortion is the answer to a problem. And it is not. But we've made one step back toward God. Amen? We needed to make that step. We need to let God know that, that we trust Him and we love Him. And please pray for those on the front lines who are making those steps. Because they're taking a mighty risk. But they're standing for a God that will stand beside them forever. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 9, 42, after he said that about the judgment on children. He said, and if your hand offend thee, cut it off, and it's better to enter into life maimed than having two hands and go to hell into the fire that will never be quenched. Listen to what he says about that fire. He says, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. He's not talking about something he's invented the idea of. Hell is not just about torture. It's about disintegration of who you are. The eternal loss of being a real person. The loss of your potential. The loss of, of fulfilling your destiny. The loss of being connected with what you should do. In hell, the mathematician has lost touch with his science for it doesn't matter. The rock star who worshipped himself through his art cannot even sing a simple scale. The man who lived for the flesh all through his life suddenly is focused on his flesh as it burns and deteriorates but never goes away. Hell is eternal desire unfulfilled. G.K. Chesterton once remarked, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and dignity of human personality. What did he mean by that? 
what he, what he meant by that is the reality is it, it complements in the fact that it represents our freedom. It's a choice that is made. No one would choose to want to be destroyed this way. No one would choose when it's so simple to say, I'm a sinner, forgive me of my sins, I accept the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. No one would pass that by, but foolish people, close-minded people, self-centered people, people who don't, do not stand still and listen to the Word of God will walk into that stead and destroy themselves. And I told you I'd give you eight lies from the devil concerning hell. Let me give those to you very quickly, and they're very important. Unfortunately, many of these lies are found being preached in pulpits even today around the world. They're taught in seminaries and taught on many campuses. Number one, one of the things that's taught very frequently today is that hell is not a place, but it's a state of mind. I'll say again, Jesus mentioned hell three times in Scripture. When he mentioned it, he mentioned the physical part of it. In fact, he used the imagery of out, out from old Jerusalem, outside the walls of Jerusalem in the southwestern corner was a place called Gehenna. Gehenna was the, what you'd call the trash dump. We all know where the trash dump is in this area. If you go out 41 on the right, you can spot it very easily. If the gates are closed there... There's always trash sitting outside, right, Terry? Every time I ride by there, somebody was too lazy to get there on time and left it outside. And I pray for those people that run that dump because they're constantly picking other people's trash up. That's a place where people go and take things. The dump called Gehenna outside of Jerusalem was very different. Gehenna was a place where animal carcasses would be taken to, to be destroyed. It's where very poor people would be buried. It always had a stench and an odor in the air. There was always a fire there because one of the only things that would cleanse away uh, a disease was fire. And there was always smoke rising up from it. Jesus used the image of that place, Gehenna, as what hell would be like. It is a physical place. Secondly, some people say that hell is just annihilation, that you cease to exist anymore. Well, the problem with that is it plainly describes that God created us in His image, meaning that our spirit, our, our soul that, that, that we are, will live on forever. He didn't just create us for fun and then one day we just dissipate and disappear. No, not at all. We will exist somewhere forever and we get to choose now, let me tell you this. Uh, when I was growing up, we had what we, what we call the five... Did you all have the five-second rule growing up? You drop something on the floor, you could pick it up in five seconds. By the way, that doesn't work. A doctor told me it doesn't take germs very long to grab onto something like that. There's not a five-minute warning either that you're going to die. You can, in the last waning moments of life make that choice I've heard people many times say oh I'll live the way I want to have fun and then I'll wait till I'm I'm old and everything's you know where I know I'm headed that way uh, and then I'll make a decision for Christ Satan loves for us to make that decision you know why because Satan knows that over time our conscience will convict us and, and we'll we'll want to decide but, but when we say no, 
we move in the direction of being insensitive. Kind of like falling down on your knees when you're a little kid skating. Hurts the first few times, but after a while you build a callus up and it doesn't hurt anymore. Well, over a lifetime of being convicted about your sins, eventually you lose that sense of conviction. Or you develop this sense, well, I'm in church, so therefore I'm okay. God's going to understand. He's not going to send me to hell. I'm in church more than most, most church members. I, you know, surely he's going to understand. How many people say that? The reality is, there is an eternity that your soul will spend somewhere. And you get to decide. Some people say that hell is soul sleep. The soul is unconscious in eternity. No. Our soul and our spirit has a way of, of, of communicating with us, even in our sleep. Have you, have, you, have you had restless nights before I have? And it's like I had unresolved issues in my heart that I needed to deal with. I've learned to, to go to bed, and I go to bed very early, by the way, unlike some of you that stay up texting all night long. I go to bed early. I, I, I drink a glass of water, I pray, and I have a, a, a kneeling altar in my, in my study. And then I go to bed and, and ask that God would let my, my mind go to sleep and let me rest. You see, God made our spirit so that it's constantly dealing with issues. If you have unresolved conflict during the day, you're going to have a restless night. You're going to struggle with that. Some people say that hell is a purging place where we prepare for heaven. Well, that idea sounds good. It just isn't logical. Because that's not what God says all through Scripture. We are given the idea that we can choose to follow Him, to repent of our sins, and to allow His Holy Spirit to come in and guide us. Hell is not a purging place where we prepare for heaven. I've always said purgatory was a neat idea, it just isn't scriptural. It'd be nice to be able to be put aside and, 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 and deal with some things. I mean, you know, everybody at some point in their life had to sit in the corner at school or had to go to the principal's office and get discipline. And then they were restored. But eternity doesn't work that way. God says to us, I gave you my best, my son. His blood covers your sin. It's not a, a difficult thing. It, that's why I, I'm a different kind of preacher about that. If, if you want to be saved, you don't have to necessarily walk down the aisle because some people are terrified to walk down the aisle. They say that the second greatest fear in life, other than death, is public speaking or standing you know, somewhere in the public. And I mean, I, I don't have to explain that to you. You know it very well. The reality is this. You want to join this church? You want to make a public profession of faith? We've got a way around that. And I've done that before a number of times. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking at people here that I've reached out to because I wanted them to be able to do that. There is no obstacle standing in your way to accepting Jesus as Savior. Call me, text me, write me. We can do that. Don't put it off. Don't say that somehow everything will be fine because it won't. Some people say hell is not necessary because 
eventually everybody's going to be saved. That's simply not true. Universal salvation is not expressed anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere. Some people say hell is a place where departed souls communicate with their loved ones on earth. Hogwash. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why would anybody in heaven ever want to come back to this earth? Now, I grant you, there, there are a lot of grandmas over there yanking, you know, on, on Jesus' sleeve saying, please don't forget about my grandson. He, he had more shooting, but I want him in heaven. There are plenty of people praying for folks, you know, that, that they care about, that they'll hear that. But, but no, there's no way to just communicate like that. Some people try to mention Saul and Kings and the witch of Endor. The witch of Endor did not call up Samuel. That was not Samuel, that was God. And God looked in the face of Saul and told him all of his failures and exactly what would happen to him. There is no way to communicate with those who've gone on. They would not want to come back as much as they love you. They're in paradise with their God. They're not going to come back. And then some people say hell is not a literal place with literal fire. Jesus made it very plain. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and one of the heroes in Atlanta early on was a fellow named Ted Turner. Ted Turner's story is, is a sad story in a way. His father committed suicide. He had started a company called Turner Advertising. It was mostly road signs that advertised products and services. And he had some issues and he committed suicide. Ted Turner grew up as a little boy in, in a house. His dad was deceased, and his sister, his older sister, had acquired a horrible disease. And they attended a church uh, that was right across the street from my church in Atlanta, uh, St. Philip's Cathedral. And they said that many times that, that little Ted Turner would go up and pray for his sister who was dying. And he would beg God, and he made all sorts of agreements with God if God would only save his sister's life. And his sister died. And he became very bitter. So bitter that in his life, he said things like this. He said, anybody that's opposed to abortion is a bozo, and they look like idiots, and they prove how foolish Christianity is. He said, Christianity is the religion of losers. He said to the Dallas Morning News not too many years ago. He said, Christ's death on the cross was a joke made up by sad people. And he said, I don't want anybody, anyone to die for me. I've had a few drinks and I've had a few girlfriends and it's going to put me in hell, so be it. That's what Ted Turner said. Turner also said this to a group of broadcasters not too many years ago. He said, your delegates to the United Nations are not as important as the people who are broadcasters in this room. We are the ones who determine what the people's attitudes are. It's in our hands. We control the thought processes of America. That's what Ted Turner said, the, the man who started Cable News Network. I checked the records yesterday just to find out. Would you care to venture a guess what percentage of people in America today trust their cable news implicitly? 
I want to say back to Ted Turner, no, we don't trust you anymore because you've lied through your teeth. You've deceived us. You've told us that, that, that bad is good and black is white. You, you've led us down the road to perdition. You have destroyed our country. And you've led us away from God. And no, we don't believe you. And though Ted Turner is still with us and he's still breathing air, he needs to go back and find the God that he mocked and find out that if he goes and meets him, his sister is there with that God in loving paradise. Yes, there is a hell. Yes, it is real. There's a deadline for each one of us. Our parents cannot make the decision for us. Neither can our friends and our relatives. We have to decide. It's a choice that we make. And I pray that if you're here this morning, you've made that decision already. And if you're doubtful of it, please talk to me. I can help you walk down the road to assurance of knowing that your sins are forgiven. There are a lot of things in life you may gamble with. This is not one of them. One time, Red Skelton looked at his wife as they were walking into the airport, and he said, you know, I'd give anything if I had our grand piano with us right now. And she said, why on earth would you want our grand piano? He said, because our tickets for the plane are sitting on our grand piano. <laughs> Don't let your hope for heaven be resting somewhere else when you start to step into eternity. Make sure that your relationship is fixed in Christ Jesus and that your transition from this world to the next is one of peace, satisfaction, and joy. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much that you give us a comfort beyond all comforts when you place the Holy Spirit of God within us when we become believers. That is the assurance of our faith and of our sins forgiven. That is the reality that we have nothing to fear. And I pray that everyone in this room has that presence of the Holy Spirit within them, guiding them, knowing that they have that relationship and it will not leave them whatever the storm may be in their life. Father, comfort them now. I pray that if there's someone in this room that does not have that assurance, that today they, they'd sit and talk with me, whether they're young or old, and they'd see to it that they're okay. Lord, there are a lot of things we can take a chance on in this life, but that's not one of them. And I pray that we would understand the reality of hell, but we would also understand the assurance of a home in heaven. Lord, speak to someone now. And may they hear your voice and respond readily. For it's in your holy name we do pray. Amen.